I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 17. We're going to look in particular at verses 9 through the end of the chapter, but but we're going to read the whole chapter so that we can uh, see it in context, because it does all sort of hold together. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven." And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Amen. Beloved congregation of God chosen in Christ, Israel was having a bad week. They had been wandering through the wilderness, uncertain of their destination, and they were like children in the back of a car, growing impatient. How soon till we get there? How much longer? Moaning and complaining, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. And Moses rightly discerned they weren't complaining against him, though he was the one whom they named. They were really complaining against and testing God. They longed for the quiet, peaceful springs of Elam, where there were palm trees for shade and 
springs of water to drink from. But here they were out in the wilderness. Now last time we saw how they came to Rephidim, which was very close to their initial destination, which was Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. And they complained there that there was no water. And so God caused Moses, trailing the elders of Israel behind him, to go ahead of the people to Horeb, to Mount Sinai, where he would, with his staff, strike the rock and water would flow from it demonstrating that the God who cursed their enemies would also provide for His people. But now, now we read that they encountered Amalek. Now they had heard of Amalek. They were, in fact, distant cousins, descendants of Isaac's son Esau. Amalek was a largely nomadic nation of people, And they were known, they're demonstrated throughout the Old Testament, as a a vicious, warlike people. They, in fact, enriched themselves by attacking those whom they regarded to be weak, those cities that were left unguarded, those people who were lagging behind, and they enriched themselves with the plunder. And that seems to be what happened here. Moses, with the elders, had gone to Horeb. To Sinai. And there they had, well, God had brought forth water from the rock, and now the people had to follow behind. But remember, there's over a million people. It takes them time to get from point A to point B. And we learn from Deuteronomy 25 that Amalek didn't attack all the people at once. No, they were an opportunistic people. They attacked the back of the column the ones who were weak, the ones who were elderly, the ones who were young, the ones who were struggling. They attacked the weak so as to overcome and to plunder before dashing back off into the the hills. It was a, a demonstration of wickedness, a demonstration, according to Deuteronomy 25, that Amalek did not fear God. And suddenly water is the very least of Israel's problems. However, the lesson they had just learned about God's providence, about God's care for His people, was exactly what they needed to give them hope. And so our text for this morning describes what came of this crisis. It shows how how Moses responded, how Israel fared, and also, in all of it, how God keeps His people. Not just back then, but also today in the face of their enemies, in the face of their hardships, in the face of their trials. And what we see there is that Israel's mediator enables God's people to overcome the enemy. That's our theme. Israel's mediator enables God's people to overcome the enemy. But now when I I speak there of mediator, we need to remember what that is. It's not a word that we use every day though we do hear it often enough in church, because it's an important word. A mediator is someone who stands between two parties. In this case, between Israel, between God's people, and God Himself. Kids, you remember that medium, something that's medium, is between large and small, right? A mediator stands between our great God and His small, weak people. 
And Moses was called to serve as a mediator. That is, he stood between Israel and God. He came to the people and spoke to them what God wanted them to hear. And then he came to God in prayer and prayed for what Israel needed. He was a mediator. And in the face of this crisis, in the face of this unjust attack by Amalek, the first thing that Israel's mediator does is led by God's Spirit. He installs over Israel a servant leader. Moses calls to himself Joshua. That's the first thing he does. Now, this is the first time we meet Joshua, but of course we're going to hear much more about him very soon. Because he's one of the twelve who will spy out the promised land. And one of the two men who will bring back a favorable report. He will soon become well known among Israel as Moses' right hand man. And when Moses is taken to be with the Lord, he's the one God will install over Israel. But right now, right now he's simply one of the youngest among Israel's leaders. And Moses calls him to himself and says, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Joshua is to select men for battle. Men who are strong, who are brave, who have the ability to take up arms against their enemy. And he is to lead those men into battle. Notice that. He's not to choose the men and send them. He's to choose the men and lead them. The leaders whom God sets over his people, he sets over them, not behind them. They lead, they go into the battle. But Joshua will not fight and the people under him will not fight alone. Because Moses himself will observe the battle from the hilltop. Don't ignore that detail that he's going to be Observing from the hilltop, that's not just because it's a good vantage point. In the Bible, mountains and hills are typically representative of the place where God meets with man. Moses will, in some sense, meet with God while Joshua and his men fight. And he will do so, Moses tells him, with the rod of God in my hand. That's significant. Remember what we heard last time. God gave that rod to Moses for three purposes. The first was to show Israel that he truly was from God, right? That was why uh, God gave him the ability to throw that rod down and it would become a snake, a serpent, and then he could grab it by the tail and it would again become a rod. That was to demonstrate to them that Moses was sent by God. At the same time, It was an instrument of judgment against God's enemies. When he came to Pharaoh, he did the same thing. He threw that rod down. It became a serpent, demonstrating that he had come from the true God. Now his magicians, Pharaoh's magicians, were able to do the same thing. But in an act of judgment, Moses' rod, or Moses' serpent at that moment, consumed their serpents. Later, Moses would use that rod to strike the waters of the Nile. And that water, which was a source of life for Egypt, was turned to blood, a sign of death. He would strike the the dust of the ground 
from which they grew their crops. And it would become a curse. It would be turned into gnats. So that rod was a sign of cursing against God's enemies. But at the same time, it was a sign of provision for God's people. Moses held out that rod over the Red Sea. And what happened? It divided in two. So the people could pass through the midst of it and escape from their enemies. Later... Earlier in this chapter, he struck the rock with it at God's command, and the rock poured forth water by which their lives would be sustained. So in light of all that, recognize the significance of Moses leading Joshua, leading the people from the hill with the staff of God in his hand. As Joshua confronted fierce, wicked Amalek, All he had to do if he was frightened, all he had to do if he was concerned was to look up on that hill and recognize there stands the mediator, there stands God's servant with the rod in his hand. The rod of God by which he curses his enemies, the rod of God by which he provides for his people. See, Joshua in this account is in a very real sense serving as a prophecy of Christ's provision for the church. The church is often called in this age the church militant because we are in this world engaged in a struggle. We are called to claim every part of life for Christ. And as we do so, we expand the kingdom. The kingdom of God is really the reign of Christ through His people, exercised through His people. As the church lives in this world, we are, called to, we are called to serve Christ, not just in our worship, but in raising our families, in using our gifts for work, in interacting with our neighbors, in leading our society. And Satan hates that. He does everything he can to thwart our efforts to serve Christ in all of life, right? We can expect that, and we certainly will see that in the way that he seeks to undermine us, in the the way that he seeks to to tempt us and lead us astray, in the way that he slanders us and, and opposes us and tries to bring to bear whatever power he can against us. And we are called to fight. Not with swords, but with a spiritual, it's a spiritual battle we fight. We all are called to fight against the temptations and the trials. We all are called to continue to serve Christ in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the warfare. And God sets over us leaders, doesn't He? He gives us elders who remind us of our calling to fight, who remind us of our calling not to blend in with the world, who who remind us that we bear the sword of the Spirit, which Satan cannot resist. They help us, they equip us for the battle. They They come alongside of us when we're wounded and hurt, and they strengthen us, they build us up. Likewise, the deacons. When they see those who are are brought low by this world, whether through poverty or sickness or grief, the deacons come alongside of them and they, they seek to meet those needs or to rally the people of God to meet those needs. And God sits over us ministers 
who explain and apply that word and help us to understand what it means to serve God, what it means to expand His kingdom in the midst of a broken world. But over all of it is Christ. Because it is Christ who calls and ordains those elders. It is Christ who is equipping and using those elders. It is Christ who raises up those deacons and gives them the resources they need and lays it on their heart to go and seek out this one and to talk to that one. It is Christ who calls and equips the ministers and not only sends them forth with His Word, but applies that Word to the hearts of His people. You see, Christ is the one who goes before us because, in fact, He has already gone before us. He has already fought Satan on our behalf and he has secured the victory. As I said earlier, we know the end of the story. We know the battle or the the war has already been won. The battle still rages, yes. But the war has been won. It's been won by Christ who went before us and who now stands before us to curse the enemies of God and to provide for the people who serve Him. We need to remember that. We need to remember that in all of life we serve our King. It is so tempting, so tempting to watch men, to fear men, to worry about what this one thinks or what that one thinks. I fall into that trap. You wonder what this person's going to think or what that person will notice, and, and you start serving them. And serving the opinions and the thoughts and the ideas of men. But there is no life and there is no help and there is certainly no victory in that. There is victory in Christ. He is the one whom we serve. He is the one who gives us the victory. He is the one who equips us moment by moment, day by day, as He leads us into this battle. And folks, we live on the battlefield, every one of us. We will continue to live on the battlefield until Christ calls us home or until He comes back and makes all things new. So our calling in the midst of the battle is to follow Christ by following those He sets before us and engaging in the battle. We follow Christ when we heed the call of those elders to come to worship. Or when we sit down at a family visit and we hear those elders apply God's word to our lives and to the lives of our families and we take that to heart. Or when they admonish us because we've been fearing men or because we've been following the flesh and we heed their instruction and we turn back. We serve Christ and we fight in that battle. When we hear the deacons call us to bring our tithes and our offerings, certainly. But also when they call us to use our gifts and our abilities to serve those in need. We serve Christ and we fight in that battle when we hear God's word and we pay attention to it when it's preached to us. And we believe and we hold fast. However, as Moses or as Israel's mediator, Moses doesn't merely install a servant leader over them. Because he knows that the Amalekites are fierce and that on their own, the people of Israel cannot win the battle, right? I mean, 
They were slaves up until a minute ago. They don't have the experience the Amalekites have to fight, to, to war, to battle. So Moses ascends the hill to intercede with Israel's sovereign king. And here the image of Christ transfers from Joshua to Moses. Right in the middle of verse 10, Joshua goes to select his men to head into battle. And meanwhile, the camera swings over and we see these three figures ascending the hill. Moses, the prophet and mediator who has been leading Israel, Aaron, who soon will become their priest, and Hur. Now this is the first time we encounter Hur. Jewish tradition holds that Hur was the husband of Moses' sister Miriam. That might or might not be the case. But what we know is that very soon he would be demonstrated to be one of the preeminent among Israel's elders. When Moses has to ascend to the mountain... He tells the elders of Israel that if they have any trouble, if they have any problems and they need help, they can go to Aaron or to her for instruction and direction. So he is an elder who is known and respected among the people of Israel. Now as the battle begins, Moses, his rod held firmly, Aaron and her at his side, he raises his hand toward heaven. And as long as his hands are raised, Israel prevails against the Amalekites. But if his hands fall down, the Amalekites begin to win. Got to admit, I remember seeing that or reading that story when I was a kid and having no clue what that meant. Why is it That when Moses raises his hand, the people of Israel win. When Moses' hands drop, the Amalekites, it, it didn't make sense to me. But folks, understand what he's doing is praying. He's raising his hands imploringly to heaven, to God. Asking for his help, pleading for his blessing upon Israel. His hand has the rod in it. So that Joshua looking up to the top of the hill and all the people of Israel looking up to the top of the hill can see that it is not by their strength that they fight and it is not their strength that will get them the victory. It is God's for which Moses is praying. And he has that rod in his hand to remind them that the God to whom he prays, the God whose help he seeks, is the one who cursed their enemies before and laid them in the bottom of the sea. And the one whose care for them is so amazing and so sovereign that it can split a sea in two and it can bring water from the rock. However, Moses is not strong. As the hours drag by, his hands drop, his prayer falters. And so the people who rely on the strength that that prayer brings also falter. You see the lesson there, right? Israel needs someone to intercede for them. They need the strength that only God can provide and that He does provide through prayer. But they need the intercession that is stronger than a mere man can provide. They need an intercession that is absolutely without end and without flaw. But it can't be Moses. Not him alone, at least. And so what happens? 
Aaron and her, seeing what, what's occurring here, they go find a stone and they bring it and they have Moses sit upon that stone so that he doesn't faint from weakness. And then each of them takes an arm and they help Moses to hold up his hands in prayer. And then verse 12. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people by the sword. What an amazing lesson. Joshua and his people triumph. The enemy of God is defeated, but not by Joshua's strength, not by the determination of Israel, only by the power of God for which Moses interceded. So it is with us. We are engaged in a mighty battle that has encompassed every age and filled every land. The ancient hymn declares, against us stand unnumbered foes, and it's absolutely right. And it's not just men. In fact, it's not primarily men. You remember what Ephesians 6 says. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What that means, folks, is the turmoil of today. You may have heard on the news that a global day of jihad was declared on Friday as the Muslim terrorists of Hamas sought to invigorate their brothers throughout the world to fight against the infidel. That's us, by the way. Anybody who's not a believer in the false god of Islam uh, is considered to be an infidel. And it's tempted to wring our hands and get all worked up over the wickedness that is Islam. And it is wicked. It's a false religion. But that's not the real enemy. The reason they fight, the reason they do all those wicked things is because of the evil one who lies behind them and under them and within them. It's a spiritual battle. They're just a manifestation of that spiritual battle. But the real enemy is Satan and his spiritual forces that lie behind them and that have deceived them. And understand, they are deceived. They are enslaved, every one of them. Pity them. By all means, defend your families. But pity those who serve false gods and recognize that we cannot fight against the true enemy on our own strength. As Martin Luther wrote in his hymn, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We need God's power, which means we need the intercession of a mediator. But we need a better mediator than Moses. Moses couldn't keep his hands up. The prophet was too weak. He needed the priest holding one hand and the king holding the other. He needed the fullness of the offices of Israel bound together. And that's Christ. He is the one who came as the perfect prophet, but also the perfect priest, and also the perfect fullness of the kingship. And he came and he secured the victory, and then he rose up triumphant into heaven. And what's he doing there? Hebrews 7 tells us 
He is the one who is able to, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And what's He doing? He's praying for you. He's praying for us. His hands are uplifted in prayer and they never falter. They never fail. He never needs any help. He is always continuously caring for us, seeking what we need. Psalm 121 reminds us, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Jesus' intercession is constant and sure, and it will always provide what we need. However, however, with the victory, Moses doesn't just dismiss God's people and say, go enjoy your fresh water. He is Israel's prophet, and as such, the last thing he does here is impress upon Israel God's sure justice. And that's the last thing we see. First, God tells Moses, verse 14, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Now, at first that might seem a little silly. Joshua was a first-hand witness, right? Why do we need to write it in a book and remind him? Surely he's the one who's going to remind everybody else what happened. But, but recognize, Joshua's going to be one of twelve who go into the land and scout it out. And ten of those twelve are going to be absolutely overwhelmed, but also terrified by what they see. They're going to be overwhelmed by the goodness of the land, but then they're going to see the inhabitants of the land, and they're going to be terrified. They're going to say, there is no way we can withstand these enemies. There is no way that we can take this land by force of arms. We just can't do it. And Joshua's going to have to remember how he led the people in battle against a foe that was far more experienced, far more fierce, far more determined. But God, by his strength, defeated them, routed the enemy. And later, later, 40 years later, Joshua would lead them into the land itself. And they would see cities tightly fortified, bristling with arms. It's people determined. They would not give up their land without a fight. And Joshua would need to remember, it's not by our strength, it's not by our wisdom. It is by God who defeated the, Am the Amalekites before us that we will enter the land that He has promised us. Joshua in particular needs to be reminded, but so do the people. That's why it had to be written down. They had to be reminded of what God had done and of the power that he had exercised. And not just his power. They had to be reminded of the Amalekites. Understand the Amalekites were not uniquely wicked, but they were symbolic. They were symbolic of all God's enemies. The ones of whom we sang in Psalm 3. Who see that the people of God rest in Yahweh, rest in the true and living God, and who mock them because of it. The enemies 
who seek to undermine and destroy the people of God and if possible to destroy the church itself and if they can't destroy it, to corrupt it. Those enemies that the Amalekites symbolized, they're with us in every age and they will be until Christ comes back and utterly annihilates them and sends them to eternal punishment. But until then, we need to remember they are not our enemies, they're God's enemies. And God has promised that he will have war with Amalek from generation to generation, that he will fight, not just us. We're weak. But he will have war. He will bring vengeance. He will exercise his authority and his power against the enemy from generation to generation. And so Moses builds an altar. He calls the people to worship. And what does he call the altar? The Lord is my banner. The word there, it's not necessarily just describing a, a fluttering piece of fabric. It's describing that which draws one's attention, that which, on which we focus. What he's saying is, the Lord is the one we trust. The Lord is the one to whom we look. Not Moses, not Joshua. The Lord. He is our banner. He is our strength. He is the source of all our hope. He is the one in whom we put our faith. And then he says to the people, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now that verse is difficult to translate. It's difficult to understand. But here's what I believe Moses is teaching Israel with this last statement. He's calling them to remember his intercession, how he prayed for Israel's help, and how as he prayed, they prevailed. As he sought God's help, God sent that help with great power. He wants them to remember they have a hand upon the throne of the Lord. Not Moses' hand. Not Aaron's or hers. He's pointing them forward to Christ. To the one who always intercedes for God's people. Whose prayer never takes a break. And who consequently is able to empower us against the enemy. No matter what time. No matter how fierce. No matter how desperate the situation might seem. He is interceding. He is providing. And he will never stop. Until the enemy is finally done away with. Revelation tells us. Revelation 20 that there will at some point come a time when it seems like the enemy is about to triumph. When it seems like the church is about to come to an end. And at that very moment, Christ will reveal the absolute fullness of his triumph. And the enemy we will never see again. It sometimes feels that way in our own lives. When we're overwhelmed with the depth and the breadth of our sin and failure. When we're surrounded by people who hate the Lord and see, seem intent on bringing us down. When we can't see the light. 
We can't understand how any victory could come of this. And it's at that moment we need to remember a hand upon the throne of the Lord, that Christ is interceding on our behalf, that He will provide the strength we need and the victory we crave, and that He will bring vengeance against His enemies, justice against those who oppose the people of God. He is our hope, He is our help, and He is all our victory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you alone provide that which we need. For you have brought about triumph through your son Jesus. And you constantly hear the prayer that he prays on our behalf. We are so thankful that you have installed him at your right hand. That you hear his prayer. And that he loves us so very much. Teach us to be confident in him and confident in you through him. And so, Lord, make us to be your faithful servants, your faithful soldiers in the fight. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.